KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. A group of scientists in Philly has been working hard on a COVID vaccine at the Wistar Institute at Penn in partnership with Inovio Pharmaceutical, which is not too far away in Plymouth Meeting. Dr. David Weiner is director of Wistar Institute's Vaccine Center and co-founder of Inovio. Talked to him a few times now since the beginning of the pandemic, and I reconnected with him to see what they've learned about the virus, to see how their vaccine development is going, and to hear what he thinks about the first vaccines to reach the finish line. So, Dr. Weiner, thank you for being with us. Let's start out with this. Where are you right now on the development of your vaccine? Well, Carol, um, we are part of a CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations funded team, and now a a Defense Department funded team that is centered around Anovio and uh, Anovio's technology and DNA. And that is now a large consortium that the original founding members were, um, of course, led by Anovio, the DNA vaccine and medicines company, and Wistar Institute and uh, University of Pennsylvania. Now, many, many additional partners that form the coalition um, advancing this vaccine. And so where are you? I understand the FDA has given you the green light to go into phase two of your testing. So the vaccine was advanced as exactly through um, swallowing studies into a phase one and then expanded phase one and then early studies. And now the FDA has allowed the vaccine to move into phase two studies, expanded phase two, which will um, support ultimately the phase three efficacy trial. And the phase two hopes to recruit, will recruit about 400 individuals and they will be from different age groups to allow um, testing of the immunogenicity, tolerability, and safety across those different age groups. And so we're very excited about this development, and we think it's a very important uh, development for this uh, particular vaccine type and for the global um, need for multiple vaccines that can be available to impact COVID-19. So tell me a little bit first about phase one. How many people were involved in that and what was the result? So there was a, an early phase one trial that uh, was started at uh, the University of Pennsylvania as well as uh, Kansas City. And that was expanded to then include sites at University of Kentucky. And uh, the initial group had uh, 40 people. And then there was an expansion to another 80 additional volunteers, and then it expanded to individuals over 65. That study showed that the vaccine was very well tolerated and safe in that number of individuals, and also produced antibodies and CD4 and CD8 T-cell responses that target uh, COVID-19 that we think are relevant for uh, protection. The vaccine preclinically had shown protection in animal studies, including mouse uh, protection trials and uh, monkey trials, as well as a monkey memory study um, before or during uh, the development into the clinic. In in addition, Anovio partnered uh, with um, the International Vaccine Institute in Korea, which expanded a phase one uh, study and is planning on expanding that study further, and then also collaborated with 
a group in China called Beijing AdVaccine, and that group opened a phase one slash phase two study. The phase two component is supposed to start soon. You've run into a bit of a roadblock with the FDA, and it doesn't have to do with the safety of your vaccine, but rather it has to do with the way you administer that. I want to talk about that for a moment. What are the FDA's concerns here? I think like many uh, groups, development of these vaccines has been under uh, an unusual condition. And the Anovio uses a very simple device for locally delivering the vaccine. And that's been studied in several thousand administrations already in hundreds of people and used in very different trials. We've used that in a trial for development of an Ebola vaccine with the Defense Department, and we've also studied it in development of the MERS vaccine, which is now in expanded studies with uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And so we have a lot, and Inovio has a lot of data on the safety. However, in this case, what you're doing is you're scaling up to really provide millions and millions of uses and doses. And so the file for that is much more uh, larger than what had previously been worked on. And so that had to all be prepared and, and gone over with the FDA. I think it's not different than several of the other groups that have been asked for additional questions and follow-up. And the, that is the job of the FDA. And they do an outstanding job of keeping us safe and asking questions. So it isn't, it is really more about what we could see going, or what Anovio could see going forward and uh, Anovio has satisfactorily addressed all those um, issues to move into the phase two and the data from the phase two combined with an additional package for um, submission of the phase three is how Anovio feels they're going to address that. That's what they have announced in their press release. Can you talk about a little bit about the, the delivery? Uh, am I saying this right? Selectra, is that how you pronounce it? They use a Selectra device for uh, skin delivery. And it gives a small computer-controlled electronic, basically, pulse. That pulse causes highly efficient transfection into the local skin tissue of the DNA um, delivered, the DNA-encoded vaccine, which is the spike antigen. That spike antigen then is expressed locally, only locally, and it is then seen by the immune system. The immune system, because this is made within the cells of the body, it's really a blueprint for uh, spike, the antigen that's the target of the host immune response that scientific community has established can be protective against uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so those antibodies and T cells can uh, both block and neutralize virus when it tries to get into cells, which we've shown in animal models and others have shown with their um, approaches. And also T cells can then cure, clear the infection and uh, lower um, viral replication and therefore provide more rapid clearance as well. So that two-armed approach is unique to these kind of vaccines that are produced in vivo. And the device provides a very consistent delivery platform for achieving that. Does it have to be delivered by selector or can your vaccine also be given by shot? So this vaccine is designed because it's a DNA. So DNA is encoding for the sequence. It's not actually the virus protein at all, similar in that way to the way the RNA vaccines require formulation in lipid nanoparticles, and that's part of why they require extreme temperatures for part of their storage, the extreme cold, 
because those lipid nanoparticles are what take the RNA into cells and allow it then to be processed and express the virus spike antigen, which then can become the target of the immune response. In this case, we have a different strategy, this approach, which is um, DNA, which is more stable and allows storage actually at room temperature for simpler distribution, but its delivery is not, it's not a nanoparticle. It's a Selectra device that then puts the DNA directly into the local skin for its expression. So they are sort of paired tools. So does this make it more difficult for you because you have to not only manufacture the vaccine, but you also have to manufacture the device? And I'm wondering what this means for availability and distribution. So I I would say it's the opposite, because I think what you have to do for uh, many vaccines is you have to all of these vaccines that are expressed inside a person require a delivery machine. So virus vectors, for example, the adenovirus vectors, they require a virus coat that binds to and can get into cells. But because of that, they might have trouble boosting and might have trouble with infecting people who have been pre-exposed to a different virus that's similar. So that's the positives and negatives of that, those kind of deliveries. And all of these approaches have them. RNA approaches have um, RNA by itself is very inefficient, so it needs a particle, a lipid nanoparticle, and that requires these very ultra-cold storage, at least for part of their distribution and delivery, which require these freezers and others that we've heard about in the news. And they also have other properties that are part of their whole milieu. Well, the DNA, we have lots of devices that we use, including needle and syringe. So having a device is not an issue in medical situations or in a doctor's office or in the field. And so by having the device and then have, and then being able to not have extreme low temperatures, not having to, and being able to store it at room temperature and having long-term stability and very consistent delivery and potency with also, as I mentioned, excellent tolerability, those are advantages. So the other way you can look at it, which I think we look at it, is that it's an extreme advantage. It's simpler. Um, it's very consistent. We're very used to devices in uh, medical situations. We use them all the time. And so um, this is sort of a new frontier where you're actually combining the very simple and stable delivery of the DNA with a very consistent, small, sort of fat pencil-like delivery device. Are they easy to use? Do people have to be trained to do this? They're about as complicated as an electric toothbrush for a person to use. Okay. (laughs) Most of us can do that. So uh, Pfizer, Moderna, now AstraZeneca have all announced promising results and are asking for emergency approval. And I'm wondering, are you too far behind at this point to compete with the other vaccines that seem to be further ahead in the process? Well, first, I would say we are excited and thrilled by this development. We are thrilled and we congratulate Pfizer and BioNTech for their pioneering work and uh, Moderna and the NIH. What an extraordinary group. And also Oxford, uh, and of course, AstraZeneca for developing the RNA, the first two RNA and the adenovirus platforms that they've advanced. But of course, we're talking about a global distribution. And we're also talking about, um, which is 7 billion people. And since these are all the ones you talked about, two dose vaccines, that's 14 billion doses we're talking about. Mm. And so, we really need uh, a lot of vaccine 
platforms to cross the line over the next year and to be put into different circumstances. We already hear the way different uh, vaccines might be used at different circumstances and situations, and we are going to learn more as these studies in more people uh, get rolled out. And as you know, there's about, uh, was announced that there's about 20 million doses, plus or minus, may be available December, and then another 20 to 30 million in January and et cetera. So in order to ramp up, and that's for the U.S. only, not talking about the global situation, which we have to address as well, because we can't travel if the rest of the world has issues and we can't trade. And so it's really a partnership to develop all these different platforms. And I think that's sort of the way the global developers have looked at it. They funded several additional groups. And there's uh, two streams. One is Warp Speed and one is COVAX. I think that is sort of the way the groups are looking, these development groups, oversight groups are looking at it. We need uh, many groups to cross the line. When do you think yours will be ready to go? Monovio has announced that the phase two should be completed over the next few months, and then they should be in phase three trials if all goes well and with regulatory approval somewhere in the spring. So you've already talked about the kind of the difference between the DNA and the RNA vaccines. Is there um, is one more protective than the other? Well, that is a very important question. I think right now we know that both RNA vaccines have excellent protection, uh, more than 90 percent. And we've also heard that the AstraZeneca is about uh, 70 percent. However, these are still early, and we also heard that AstraZeneca thinks a subarm has taught them how to make that vaccine uh, better, and that is also traditional in um, vaccine development, that we can frequently improve on things by doing subgroup analysis. I think the other thing is, since we need people covered, I, I think we should take a lesson from the history of polio vaccines, where there were two different polio vaccines being developed. One was Jonas Salk, and one was Sabin. Sabin's was a live vaccine a live weakened vaccine, and uh, SOX was a killed vaccine. SOX vaccine, of course, was got across the finish line first. It was 70% effective and was highly effective and put deployed in the U.S. right away at basically breaking the back of polio in North America. Sabins took a little longer to develop, but eventually became the dominant vaccine strain in the world because it was very simple to make and had higher efficacy than the SOX. But then over time, it turned out there were more concerns about the live one of statements and the SOC and Sabin were then used together. So I guess what we're saying, it's great to have a lot of options and it's great to have more tools and we should put them all to use as we get them because that's going to benefit all of us in the fastest period of time. Well, now, now that we're months into this pandemic, do you have a better idea of immunity, how long immunity lasts. And I think I asked you this question when I first spoke to you months ago. And that is, do you think this is going to be one of those things where we're going to have an annual strain where we're going to have to have an annual vaccine? So I know there are a couple of questions there. So let's start with just immunity. Do you have any idea at this point how long it lasts? Well, as far as how long it lasts, uh, that is something we've been following. Initially, there have been several papers uh, in clinical journals reporting that immunity to infection was not very long, but some more recent ones say it's going to be longer than a year. I think those are bell curves, and I think it really highlights 
to me, the diversity of responses one can see in natural infection, why one of the ideas of natural infection being protective as vaccines is flawed, because the natural infection is really what the virus comes and goes in each person, and there could be a, a tremendous variability in that and a tremendous variability in the induction of the immunity that it, it generates. So, But I do think, in general, the strength we're seeing likely says we should be able to get a year or more or a few years out of these vaccines. But we're going to have to wait and see because, of course, we've only had the pandemic one year. So as far as the length of time, I think they'll last for a, a significant period of time. And we're going to have to follow that. Then I guess the second part yeah. was, is the virus changing? And I think we were very concerned about the strains that seemed to change when they went through infecting minks, as was reported in Denmark and Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're going to follow that. But as of right now, I think the amount of change from this virus is much lower than flu and things like that. So I think that's a good thing for all of us. Yeah. So I just want to ask you one follow-up question about immunity, because I'm not sure I understood you correctly. Um, So you're saying the immunity you get from or would get perhaps from actually getting uh, COVID versus the immunity you get from a vaccine are very different, could be very different. Yes. So we... We develop the vaccine and test the vaccine for overall immunity at a certain level in people. And so we, we, we generate cutoffs. But, and so we require a certain standard. But immunity from natural infection in children and adults and people with different uh, medical conditions and, and people of different ages, people with different susceptibilities, the virus might grow very robustly in one person and and very poorly in another. And the virus is not all the same either, because we did mention there are some minor differences. And and so it's a combination of things that could give a much wider spectrum of immunity. And and therefore, we we actually sort of hear that, right? We hear some people appear to be very, very silent carriers for the long term, but that's not the majority, but that's enough to cause significant outbreaks. And then we hear other people only progress the disease very rapidly. And then the people who get sickest have the highest antibody titers. And so you're basically focusing on a random, uncontrollable enemy to provide you your immunity. It's it's kind of an, uh, it's not really a way to achieve herd immunity. It's not really a very good approach at all. And we can't really predict what the outcome would be. But with vaccines, where we measure the titers and establish the range of antibodies and we measure the T cells and establish how long they last and in a population and do that by age groups and subgroups, we can have very significant and clear endpoint goals in mind and understanding of these questions and really build up towards having a position where a vaccine will give us protective immunity in a population. I read an article, and I'm not sure. I wanted to check with you to see if the, if this was in fact true. And it said that in one of the um, one of the studies, and I forget which manufacturer it was, but that people who had COVID were not weeded out. And I believe these were in phase three. Is that something? Is that is that common? Are you weeding out people who have already had it? Because wouldn't that skew the results if people who already had COVID were included? Well, so if the trials are recruiting, it could be very difficult in this situation where we're recruiting many people that we to screen out every single person who might have had COVID. But you would expect across a random study with these large numbers of thousands of people that those would be relatively equally balanced. And there is screening, pre-screening, of course, but it is possible 
you can miss. On the other question, though, there are some studies that may want to include such individuals to see how they could be boosted by their vaccine to learn that as well. So as long as the trials are designed to include uh, those type of individuals at randomly to uh, different groups and you would uh, learn that through them, then I would say that uh, those are those could be properly um, monitored and balanced and not be a problem. So it's really the goal of the trial design and what it's asking. So you're studying these different adult age groups, obviously. Then how, once you just determine, you know, it's safe, how do you then figure out if it's safe for kids to take? How, what does that process look like? So I guess the description has been that first, uh, the studies are all starting in non-children and developing high numbers of safety and tolerability and immunogenicity and now protection. So we do even have that for three vaccines. Then they could be studied in small studies working down initially small groups before they scale up of children. Historically, you know, many vaccines were developed for children, but they start out maybe in adult populations first and then work their way backwards. And so there are a lot of experience with doing that. As you know, the majority of vaccines originally were all developed eventually for childhood vaccination. And one thing that we've been talking about almost since the beginning is safety. A lot of people don't have trust or confidence that these vaccines are safe. And one part, because, you know, you guys have been able to move forward much faster than historically you've been able to do. So you know, can you respond to that? Are these vaccines safe? Have you faced any political pressure whatsoever to skip safety protocols to produce a vaccine faster than what is safe? So I would just categorically say the FDA and the regulatory bodies have been really focused on safety as their number one goal. I think that's why you've seen different groups on hold for different reasons to report incredibly important and uh, detailed responses for situations that have even come up, just how they might think about them. And I think this is really one of the um, important things people should realize. The FDA um, has really is an extraordinarily focused on safety um, regulatory body and is about the best on the planet at doing this, uh, certainly one of the best on the planet. And, and so we should have a lot of confidence in that agency. In addition, these studies have large numbers of people as they get through to efficacy. Right? We're talking about the Moderna vaccine has tens of thousands of people in it. The BioNTech, Pfizer one has tens of thousands of people. The AZ has tens of thousands of people. The Inovio one will, of course, eventually get to that level and all the rest that are going along. And then uh, when we look globally, uh, also these trials are taking place globally. And at the end of the day, we're going to have about 480,000 people participate in these different product trials that have already been chosen for the, the ones that are chosen in the wave one and wave two of these vaccine developments. We normally have much smaller numbers than that. So as far as the overall numbers of people uh, for safety in traditional vaccines, the difference is we're getting them into the process sooner and, and that is because we're faced with a pandemic that's uh, killed, you know, almost 250,000 people already in the United States. There is enormous risk outside. And, uh, and so we're putting them through these trials very quickly. But the, but the total number of people really um, allows us to know safety in the acute phase. And uh, I think people should realize at the end of the day, we're going to know safety. And then we're going to know a second thing, and that's tolerability. You know, how much does it hurt when you get the shot? 
um, which is not a safety issue, really. It's a comfort, you know, it's a different issue. So I think we're going to have both of those data in very large numbers, and we're going to be able to clinical or make very informed choices. And, and the most important thing is that we have an extraordinary risk outside our doors that we're facing, not just the deaths, but also the hospitalizations and long-term side effects that are going to be in some individuals. And there's nothing going to help us more than that than having really effective vaccines to end this pandemic, as well as new therapies that uh, can prevent us from progressing in the individuals who do get infected. In your view, can you give us uh, what your opinion is on the timeline here? When do you think we're going to get to the point where, you know, we heard a lot about herd immunity, where enough people have been vaccinated that we can at least maybe breathe a, a little bit of a sigh of relief here? Well, I think that we have two different events going on that are going to be related. One is the development, the, of the exciting development of the vaccines that are coming across the finish line, and we're going to look forward to more getting across to supply us more doses for more populations. And then the second is we're starting to see some therapies that seem to be associated with lack of progression to hospitalization. And so those two together should start really hitting us towards the spring. And, and we should start to, because if we're not progressing to hospitalization, severe disease, and there's a, a real treatment that we know about, I think that's going to make us all breathe a sigh of relief. And then as vaccines get up to more than 100 million towards 150 million, getting their two doses, which required 300 million doses of vaccine, that's going to also start to provide, uh, but it's going to last likely through most of the neck of 2021. It's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to think about that. I think a lot of people, well, I know a lot of people are fatigued right now. I think we're going to feel a lot different in just a few months because we will start to, we will start to feel mentally different as there are more of these approaches that prevent progression. And as more people get vaccinated and our hospitals start getting less full, Right now, I think we have more than 80,000 people hospitalized. We have way over 100,000 cases, you know, new cases, and uh, more than a million over a seven or eight day period, a kind of extraordinary number. So I think uh, getting that under control, that those numbers we should start going to see dropping and just, I would say, towards the spring. And uh, the winter is going to be uh, likely difficult for a little while longer. And then towards the spring, I think we will start to see a change in that and have more tools and control. Dr. Weiner, how are you doing? How's your team doing? I can't imagine the pressure you guys must feel right now. Well, I think we are all, we are thrilled and delighted to be helping and and participating and just supporting these different programs that might make a difference. We are in the, living through the same boat as everyone else. My, my daughter was an emergency room physician assistant and, uh, at the Mayo Clinic, she just moved back to the Philly area to take a job in this area. And so she's, we've been watching this on a very personal level and also learning about friends getting sick and things like that, as all of us have. And so this is a very personal thing for all of us, I think. And we're just um, really supporting each other and cheering each other on and, and looking forward to all of us coming out of this together safely. But I guess the number one thing I would say to everybody, Masks work. Please wear a mask. Masks work. Wear a mask, keep your distance, and wash your hands. That's right. That's right. 
Well, Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. I know you are extraordinarily busy and you've talked to us a a few times now uh, throughout. And so we, again, we appreciate your insight and we appreciate all the work you and your team are doing and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Gail. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.